Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. This week, I'm joined by one of Snooker's newest professionals, Peter Devlin, who got on through the Q School last year and has spent, I guess, a rather strange year on tour. Obviously, everything so far has been played in Milton Keynes. We'll get into that shortly. Peter, first of all, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Tell us how you got into Snooker. How old were you and how did you discover this great game? Oh, blimey. Uh, I'd say I was involved in pool first. I was definitely... uh, one of many people who start playing pool with the dads in the pub every weekend. And uh, I think it wasn't so much at the start, the game, it was more the competitiveness. You know, I used to, I used to lose to my dad quite a lot of pool. And that's one thing I've always um, really sort of admired about his parenting was that growing up playing any kind of sport or game, he would never let me win. It was always, Mm. you know, me crying because I've lost. And that sort of uh, brought me up as a competitive kid which I'm really thankful for now because it means that when you actually do win for the first time, it really does mean something. So I used to play pool with him quite a lot and always lose and start throwing cues around, getting all upset. And then finally I'd start to beat him and it gave me a good buzz. And then slowly, I think I was about 11 when I started playing snooker. Mm. I saw an advert in the paper for coaching and um, it was in Walthamstow in East London and joined a group of players uh, who were all sort of similar age, a little bit older and just grew from there, really. I, I found a lot of love for the game, not just for the game, but again, from the positivity of being good at something because, you know, it's, it's easy to just enjoy things. But when you feel like you're actually good at something and you enjoy it, it sort of ignites a spark. Mm. And, um, yeah, it really grew from there. And how, quickly, about, how, about 11. Sorry, how, how quickly did you become good? Because a lot of people try things and never really improve at all in their life. They, they'll start at a level and possibly end at a level did you, even at a young age, think, actually, there's something about this I can sort of do? Yeah, I would say I was very, I got good very quickly. Um, I was, so I, I was playing a lot of different sports and it kind of, um, they all fizzled out as, as I got better at snooker, you know, within about a month of playing once a week, it was like, okay, I'm going to cut the football out now. And now I'm going to do two days a week. And then it was, I'm going to cut the cricket out. Now I'm going to do three days a week. Then I'm going to cut the tennis out and do four days a week. 
then I'm going to cut the drama school out. So very soon it became a, a full, not full time thing, but you know, a most days kind of thing. And I made a, I think I made a 50 break in a match within the first three, four months. So right. I was a bit of a fluky one, not fluky, but you know, it, all the balls were nice, but still making a 50 at the age of 11 when you can hardly reach a table was, uh, was something that I thought was coming on really well. I won a lot of local tournaments and I believed that I could have turned pro at a very young age. I was very confident. Um, but as life, as life goes, you know, things don't always work out so smoothly. Uh, my mum and dad split up. It got very, very messy. Um, I sort of, I lost a lot of years. I wasn't able to play snooker during that period. I had to concentrate on school and I went through a lot of horrible times and basically, you know, just changed as a person, really. When you go through some really bad times, you do, you lose that confidence in yourself and you get, develop an- anxiousness and just change as a person, really. So I, I felt that happened to me. So I basically stopped playing for two and a half to three years. Uh, I might have played the odd day, but it, was, it wasn't competitive anymore. So when I got to the age of 15, 16, and things started to smooth out, it was my decision whether I take it seriously and try and go forward, or do I just do what I'm doing? And I always wanted to take it seriously and, and try and make something out of it. But I knew in order to do that, I'm going to have to take it full time because everyone of my age had gone way past me because they've been playing for those three years that I've missed out. So I basically made the decision that I'm going to have to leave school, take it full time if I'm going to catch up with where everyone else has gone to. So I went from being a very quick starter to quite a reasonably late developer in that sense. Quite a and big had to decision. overcome. Sorry, Peter, it's quite a big decision to just to leave school though, isn't it? If you've, like you say, you've not played for a few years. Yeah, it was. That's a big decision. It's not something you take lightly, I guess. No, I mean, my mum was against it, which I can understand, but um, I managed to sweet talk her around it. Um, I was always decent at school. I got my GCSEs and did all that sort of thing. And I was was always comfortable enough to know that I, I would be okay if I carried on. But I just, I wanted to give myself every chance I had. And I knew that that was going to be something that you'd have to sacrifice for you know the eggs in one basket mm. and it's a scary thing to do because it is it is a big risk and uh, yeah obviously now I'm glad I took it but at the yeah. time it was it was scary and you know you do feel like you're you're sort of potentially risking your future for a future that might not happen mm. but um yeah it was it was a big decision and I think yeah in my situation it was the right one you mentioned drama school there. You you had a sort of a career, if we can call it that, as a as a child actor. You were on you're on TV and all sorts. Tell tell us about that. Yeah, I, I've I've always loved it. I've, I've uh, I would like to consider myself a good actor. Uh, when I was growing up, I consistently made my mum believe I'd broken my leg in order to get days off school. So, it's, you know, when I started to get days off school for broken legs, I thought, hang on, I can act here. I'm quite good. <laughs> um, falling down the stairs without hurting myself, but making it look like I was hurting myself. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I went to a drama school, did a lot of stage, a lot of singing, acting on musicals and stuff like that. Uh, and I was always more interested in TV. I was always fascinated by the behind the scenes kind of thing. I used to love knowing what went on <laughs> away from the scenes. You know, I grew up thinking that EastEnders and Coronation Street was people living their real lives and someone just storming into their homes with cameras watching Mm. people living their real lives. I never understood that it was fake. So I always grew up, you know, wondering what's that like? And uh, so in terms of maybe game shows and stuff, you know, my mum took me to like the the filming of a game show, 
of the cube. And I, I used to find it so interesting, you know, how it's all fake and everything you see on TV is not real. Mm. So I, I used to love that. And then I got a chance to audition for a, a kid's show on CBBC and I got the part and I went to Scotland and filmed it and it was called Half Moon Investigations and it wasn't good. So don't YouTube it. <laughs> but um, it was not only great fun to have that experience. And it's one of my favorite experiences growing up to have that, you know, to be on TV and to have all this cool stuff, you know, getting chauffeured around and makeup and hair and all that business. Um, that was always something I found really fun, but also seeing how it all worked behind the scenes and acting on TV and, you know, being like a star, you know, at the time it was really, really cool. So that was always something really fun for me. And I did enjoy that. And it was a hard decision to give that up because I always felt like I was quite good at acting and I had a good personality for it. And it was something I could have pursued, pursued more. Mm. Out of all the other things like tennis and football, uh, acting was something I definitely felt like I had a chance in doing. Okay, but you came back to snooker, and I guess the big breakthrough, you won the English Under-21 title, big national title. Um, did you kind of see that as, A, a vindication of, of pursuing snooker again, and B, was that the kind of springboard to then think, okay, now it's time to try and turn professional? Yeah, I mean, that was... It was a bit out of the blue. You know, I was always mid-table on the junior rankings and that was kind of I mean it was huge you know, that was that was the biggest achievement I'd had before turning pro and it kind of there was a hell of a lot of pressure on on that particular final because the winner would go to the world's the Euros try and turn pro and get a lot more experience under their belt and the loser would have no more experience like back to the start again and that was a lot of pressure for me because I'd got myself into a position where I could actually get so many opportunities from this mm. and I managed to win it and then I did get that opportunity to do Cyprus for the European under 21s where I lost in the quarterfinal to turn pro China for the world under 21s and I'm a big believer of what I like to call a timeline of events and that is basically that not so much that things happen for a reason but things happen because of previous things that have happened so it can be the tiniest little thing, but that can make a difference to your future. So for example, me turning pro now probably is a lot in part down to the experience I've had in the years coming up to that. Some of those experiences like Cyprus, like China, wouldn't have happened unless I'd won the English under 21s. And winning the English under 21s wouldn't have happened unless I'd... Um, one ball I always remember is... Uh, against Louis Heathcote in the semi-final of the English under-21s. he I think he potted a black off the spot, split the pack, and a red went in, mm. in the decider of the semi-final of the under-21s. And from that chance, I managed to get in and score enough to win the match. And if he didn't get that bit of bad luck, I wouldn't have been in the final. I wouldn't have had the opportunities to go to Cyprus or, or China. And then I wouldn't have had the opportunities to represent England at the home internationals. And it, it went on from there all because of that one little bit of luck that happened in that one frame. So mm. one little scenario like that can change everything mm. without you ever realizing that that actually will make a difference. And it's, it's very philosophical when you think about it, but it is true because maybe opportunities will come up elsewhere, but that one opportunity from a little bit of luck gave me the chance to get to the final, win it, go to these places, get the experience. And now turning pro is definitely down to all the experience I've had growing up. Mm. So crazy but <laughs> yeah well it's true i think that's, that's true in a lot of a lot of uh, spheres but let's talk about q school because it, it, i mean q school is never kind of fun it's not about fun it's about people trying to turn pro 
I got the feeling... I had great fun. <laughs> well, well, come to... Well, you did because you got through. But, but let's, let's look at when it was played. It was played during the World Championship. So, obviously, all the eyes of the snooker world were on the Crucible. You're up the road at the yeah. English, English Institute of Sport playing... It seemed... A lot of matches seemed to go on very late. And it was kind of like a production line. But you got through the first event. So, you didn't have that thing of it all going to the last event. You must have been delighted to, to nail it on that first tournament. It was... Regardless of which tournament, it was the most amazing feeling ever. You know, that was... It was, it was every, the best feeling in the world all bottled up into one moment. And that can't be, you know, that can't be topped with any drugs or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, that was just the best feeling ever. Um, it was horrible. You know, the event's always horrible. It's the worst, mm. it's the worst tournament you can play because you're playing for your whole life uh, in, in a, in a one-week period. And you're waiting for that one week all, all the way through the year just to turn pro. Um, and I'd done that six times before and I'd been close. I'd not been close, close, but I'd been within three matches a few times. And there was huge pressure. You know, you're waiting all year for that and you get there and you're under so much pressure. So I just did the best I could this year to take the pressure off myself and try and enjoy it more. I went in there with no expectations. I didn't try to turn pro. I just tried to try my best. And um, it, was a, it was a very, very late day. You know, I was, I, I beat, thankfully, I beat some very, very good players. Mm. When the draw comes out, you look at it and you think, oh, no, I've got a hard draw. I'd rather have some easy players. But then once you get through it, you're happy that you had the harder players because it you know, makes you think oh, I've done well there rather than I've had a nice draw. Hmm. Not that there is many nice draws in Q school. And uh, yeah, it went on so long. And I think that maybe worked in my favour a little bit. You know, With it finishing so late at 2.30 in the morning, I feel like the adrenaline was going... I was still wide awake, you know, I was, I was feeling that buzz as opposed to maybe if we had to play the matches the next day and I've had more time to think about it, more time to stew on where I am and perhaps I would have thought, overthought it too much. Mm. The fact that I just went straight back on meant I was just playing the game as it comes yeah. and um, I showed a lot of mental strength on that day whereas I think maybe if it was split up into two days I might have overthought my way into a little bit more of a negative mindset or a scared mindset that I was that close. Whereas I just got on with it. And yeah, it was, a, it was the best day. Yeah. It was the worst day, but it was the best day. <laughs> yeah, and then, so suddenly you're a snooker professional and um, you know, it wasn't that long then until the season began, only a, only a few weeks. European Masters, you make a great start to your to career. You, know, you <laughs> beat, beat Mark Williams, um, get to the last 16. I mean, you must have thought, wow, this, this game's just easy. You just turn up, you beat world champions and you know, you're doing well. Or maybe not. It was quite hard. <laughs> it was quite hard to take in, you know, not only that, it was, it was surreal even just knowing your names in the draw first, you know, like, mm. oh God, I'm going to be on telly or whatnot. Um, and then that first tournament was wonderful. Yeah. I, I sort of, I would never have expected to get to a last 16 on my first ever ranking event. And I mean, I'm not a snooker statistic, statistic man, but I don't think there's many people that will have got to a last 16 on their first ever tournament. I know the championship league, but uh, you know, that's not, I wouldn't count that as a full, you know, full ranking event as in knockout format. So yeah, not many people would have got that far so quickly, and um, it was it was it was wonderful. The first match was tough uh, against Zach Surety. That was in itself a bit of a challenge for me to to get over the line because you're playing for three thousand, which mm, yeah. you know I'm not I'm not playing for the money. I'm playing to do my best I can, but that is more money than you know you've ever earned in one day of snooker before. I might have won a big pro am and won six hundred quid, but that's about it. You know, 3,000 mm. for one match against someone who literally was beating me in the final of every program going. 
I must have played him in about three finals and not took a frame um, in the last three times we played. So suddenly playing him for 200 quid prize pot or a 3,000 pounds was crazy. Uh, got over that match and then I felt a little bit less pressure against Mark Williams because I've got a decent amount of money to start off with. I've had a win. Now this is all just bonus. And uh, I played very well against him and I was very proud with how, you know, I've gone for one up playing quite well and then he's come back to 4-4. And I wouldn't say I did too much wrong to go 4-4. And then to make a century in the decider was quite, quite great. Mm. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Happy with it. And, um, and then I had another challenge in, you know, having to recover from that, settle down and try and put my focus on winning the next match because it's quite easy to get carried away with the buzz of it all because obviously my phone went crazy and everyone went crazy. And then Joe O'Connor is one of the toughest players on the tour and I've managed to get through him 5-4. Um, and that was another challenge for me because, you know, different style of game, different level, um, you know, back on the outside tables again, trying to settle yourself. It was, had its own difficulties and then lost to Gould 5-3 in the last 16, put up a fair account to myself. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful start to the season. You know, I thought, wow. Well, not so much that it's easy, but I thought, you know, I can compete. But, but since then, obviously, everything you played has been there. I mean, when you turn pro in normal times, there's an expectation you'll go to the Barbican in York, you'll go to all the Home Nations venues, possibly China, you know, you'll get the passport out, you'll Germany maybe, all these places. That hasn't been the case. And no, it can't be helped, and it's good that the tournaments are on. But it's a very different debut season to what you might have hoped for. What's it been like going to the Marshall Arena, you know, all the time and playing there? Yeah, so, I mean, as, as everyone listening to this can probably tell, I'm very chatty and probably very annoying. <laughs> and as you can also tell, I'm a people person. I like, you know, I like chatting. I like people. I like atmospheres. And I was really, really looking forward to the cameras, the TV, the arenas, the fans, the, the whole vibe and buzz of the World Snooker Tour. And I knew that the first little bit would be in Milton Keynes, but I hoped after two or three events that we'd be going to venues and I'd be seeing fans and I'd be getting audiences watching matches and there'd be a buzz and there'd be, you know, TV cameras, interviews. I, I was looking forward to the whole thing, you know. I love snooker, I love playing, but I also love the everything that comes with that, all the sport, you know, that's why I wanted to turn pro. And it's not been the same and it's been really upsetting. And uh, of course... World Snooker have done amazing to have tournaments at all. Although it's not the full amount of tournaments, at least it's something and I'm still earning money and enjoying it and competing. So that's, of course, brilliant. Um, the sad thing is that we've missed out on a lot of tournaments. Even this year, I think I'm playing in about 11 out of a potential maybe, what, last year, maybe there would have been 16, 17. So I have missed out and the venues... They do a good job, you know, Milton Keynes, every time you go there, it does genuinely look different. Like they've got different lights, different setups. Mm. And that's one thing I didn't realise when I turned pro that how much goes into these events. You know, you've got so many people working backstage that all have different jobs and some of those jobs is making these arenas look like they do. And so they do a great job with that. You know, every time I go there, it looks different. But at the same time, it feels the same. And I suppose that's what's difficult. You know, you're playing... Um, a Scottish Open match in the first round on the back table and then you're playing the UK Championship first round and it feels exactly the same. Yeah. And as well as that, you know, when it comes to the, the... It's not a complaint, but like the prize money structure 
is as it is. You know, the more prestigious the tournament, the more money you earn. And I won three matches in the European Masters and got 6,000 for it. And someone else who's won three matches in the UK would get 18,000 for it or 17,000 for it, which normally would be, that's understandable because it's the UK Championship and it's different, but it doesn't feel like that right now because it's in the same venue. It's the same 128 players. It's the same format. It's the same. It's just all the same. Mm. So it kind of feels like, oh, if I if only I'd done that in a different tournament, I'd have even been higher up the rankings or whatnot. Mm. So it's a very very strange one having them all in the same place, because especially with the home nations events, the English, Scottish, Northern Irish, Welsh, they are the same tournament. The only difference is the colour of the lights, yeah. and the and yeah. and the and the place that you're in, and the place that you're in is the same. So they're all best of sevens. They're all this and that. They're the same tournament. Mm. So it's quite weird having to feel like you're in a different tournament when it's just the same one. Mm. Uh, but that being said, you know, it's still, it's still fun. It's still enjoyable. I guess, I guess the one it's thing still though, a buzz. I guess one thing though, you can't, I, I think virtually every event, you couldn't sort of take anyone with you. Couldn't take family. It's very much, I mean, I guess that's another thing when you turn pro, you know, you do well in say the European masters, all oh, the family come out or your friends come out, whatever. That didn't yeah, happen. That's another did it? disappointing thing. Mm. Yeah. There's, um, there's, so many, oh, there's a camera gone. Yeah, there, oh, there's so fine. many people. There's so many people that have, have been on my side, have been supportive, and I'd love to give something back to them and say, look, here's a ticket, come and watch. Um, and if I don't win, go and watch someone else who's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's so many people I'd like to give back to, and there's also a lot of people hounding me saying, give me a ticket, give me a ticket, and I'm like, all right, first tell me who you actually are because I don't know who you are. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it'd be nice, but I can't do it. You know, there's there's people who are very close to me that would love to see not just me, but see the venues and people at the club who are massive snooker fans who would love to go backstage or, you know, see what goes on in these venues and, uh, and they can't come along, which is a shame. So, you know, and it's nice to, to take people as well because it makes you feel important. You know, they're all like, Oh wow, look how cool you are. And I'm like, yeah, you know, this is what I do. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, sh- it's a shame. <laughs> Well, something else you do, Peter, that also makes you cool is, of course, I think a lot of people know this. You are a rapper as well. You've got a very popular YouTube channel, um, and clearly a lot of work goes into them. I was I was watching a few this morning. I've got nothing else to do. I was watching a few this morning, and um, nothing else to do. That doesn't sound good, does it? You <laughs> well, should be watching it because you want to. <laughs> well, we're we're locked in. We're locked in. We've got to do something. Anyway, um, where did that start? I, I read somewhere you're in hospital. Is that how it started? Uh, it started a little bit before that, but the mainstream one did. When I was in school, I was not 100% fitting in very well with the cool kids. Mm. Um, and I think I just, I just did, a, I did some little tiny rap, only about four or five lines. And uh, as soon as I finished, everyone's like, oh! <laughs> and all that sort of thing, as you do in London. And uh, it, it, it made me cool. It made me relevant. And uh, it started to sort of get me involved in, in groups of people that I wanted to get involved with. And some of them are now good friends. Um, and people were like giving me a, a quid or two to do them a rap for their birthday or something. <laughs> you know, so whenever someone's birthday was, I'd just do them a few bars. And uh, that was about it for school. You know, I was, it, it definitely helped me in school to, to fit in a bit better. But then, yeah, I was, it was shortly after I won the English under 21s. I, uh, I think I was just eating something to do with a hazelnut and I'm allergic to hazelnuts. So if anyone doesn't like me, I've just given away my weakness. <laughs> um, and I was in hospital just, I think I stayed overnight because it was quite bad. And I, I just got a bit bored. The nurses weren't really looking after me very well. They had their own things to do. And I felt a bit neglected. So I ordered a subway 
and I ate it and it was really nice. And I just thought, right, I'm going to, I'm just going to rap about Subway. And, um, and that was it. I just did a rap about it and nothing really didn't do anything with it. And then I saw on YouTube about three months later, someone else did something very similar, not about Subway, but they sort of used the same kind of beat and the same parody style and it went massive. And I just thought I've already done that Mm. and I've got it sitting here on my phone. So maybe I've missed the boat, but I'll do it now. So I did it and it, it, it went big quite quickly, got about 100,000 views and I was getting messages left, right and centre. And it was fun. It was a buzz, you know, one's messaging you saying it was very good. And uh, from there, it sort of, I enjoyed it and it just kicked off from there a little bit there. So I, uh, then it went, I think the next, I started to just draw from experience. So I went on a Tinder date and uh, it must have been 2017 or something like that. And on the pictures, the girl looked reasonably nice. And in real life, she looked the same, but she was double the size. And I was like, hmm, a bit misleading there. And it's bad of me, but as we were eating Pizza Express, I was just thinking in my, I was thinking in my head, oh, I've got some lyrics here that would be very good for a song about catfishing. Oh, dear. So we were making conversation, but at the same time, I was having the, the cogs turning in my head. And, uh, and then we did the Tinder Girl song. And that was quite popular as well because everyone can relate to, well, not everyone, but a lot of people can relate to being catfished mm. and, uh, and it went from, yeah. So from there on it, it's sort of anything I found relatable or that I felt people could kind of see a resemblance in. I started doing raps about them and, and parodying other songs cause I can't make beats or anything like that. And basically just doing silly videos on YouTube, I've got football betting ones. But that's the I've thing you don't, about, that's, that's the thing. You don't just do raps. You actually do a, essentially a production you do a video i mean is that a lot is that does yeah. that take a long time it, it seems to be a lot of work i don't know it's it, it is a lot of work I, I can usually do it within a few days i mean mm. i've got a friend ruby who does some some good stuff like she advises me on what to do and helps me film them but usually because no one no one around my no one around my area actually wants to help with the videos and be in them and i'd love <laughs> to have people in them because that would make it better than just me mm. but it's hard. So it ends up just being me prancing around in, in East London doing uh, scenes that have something to do with the song. So if it's a football betting song, it'll be me in a betting shop throwing around a load of notes. Um, and if it's, if it's me doing a song about how expensive iPhones are, it was me in the Apple store uh, playing around with phones. So mm. I'm always sort of doing stuff like that. But yeah, it's usually just recording it on the phone, filming it on the phone, editing it on the phone that's it really doing it all on the phone so it's it's quite considering it's all on a phone i think the quality is really good mm. and uh they are proper productions i want them to be you know because it's comedy or most of my songs are comedy i feel like it needs a, a funny video to go along with it otherwise it wouldn't get the message across because a lot of them are specifically related to a, a current event or mm. an actual item so yeah i feel like like socks and links which is something that everybody gets for christmas <laughs> I thought I've got to do a song, you know, showing how everybody gets socks and links Africa for Christmas. So it has to have the visual with it. So yeah, and is I went down ju- that angle. Is this, is, will this just remain a kind of sideline or is it something, is it like an outlet, do you think? Because oh, snooker is the opposite, really. It, it's, so, it's such a sort of almost introverted sport, I think. You look at some of the great champions, Davis, Hendry, these people were very shy. It seems to me you're not. But you've got this other outlet where maybe you can put you can put your sort of efforts into maybe another side of your personality. Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed it, and 
before I was actually doing it for, you know, maybe getting views, getting a lot of views or getting interest or getting, you know, work out of it or whatnot. But YouTube's difficult like that and it wasn't going to work. I'm doing it for fun now. You know, I've got my job, thankfully. I've worked very hard for. And now this is something that I'm doing on the side for fun. If it wasn't for the pandemic, I would have had a few more songs released already. You know, I've not, since I've turned pro, I've not released a new one. Mm. Uh, but I would if I could. It's just that they need people and people aren't available right now. I've got a song called Take Me to Monopoly, which is all about what Monopoly does to families and how frustrating mm. it can be and how long it can take. And it's a great song and it's very funny and it just needs a good video with people sitting around a Monopoly board beating each other up. And I can't get people at the moment to do that. So that's frustrating me because I just want to get it done. Um, and of course, I did, I did a few during lockdown the first time before I turned pro, which was just having to be me on my own in the house because mm. I couldn't get anybody involved. So yeah, now that, I'm, now that I'm on the tour, I think I will still do them when I find time or when I find is a reasonable time. And I don't like to actively write a song. I, I'll only write a rap or a song if I feel like something's relevant or something just hit me. Like I was thinking the other day about writing a song about Amazon because we're all addicted to buying stuff online at the moment. At the same time as we all hate Bill Gates, uh, not Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, we're all moaning about how rich he is, but we're still buying everything from Amazon because it's just easy. Yeah. So I thought that's quite relevant. So I'll, I might do something like that. And uh, yeah. And as on top of that, I don't know if you're going to get to that, but I'm, I'm an ambassador for SOS. Yeah, well, I was going to come um, on to that. So, th so this is uh, Silence of Suicide. This is a relatively new charity. Um, yes. Tell us how you got involved in that and what is your sort of role in that? So I think right now, first of all, it's extremely relevant and appropriate, you know, to, to really raise awareness for this charity. All charities, of course, but you know, this one is brilliant, you know, and they're really trying to help not only with the phone lines, but with advice, you know, and I know a lot of the phone lines, they are not allowed to give advice. They're just there to listen. But SOS are trying to actually help people. And it's very difficult at this time. I got involved because uh, the Snooker Legends were doing, or Super Seniors were doing a, um, a challenge on Facebook during the first lockdown, where anyone who had a table available to them were doing these challenges, whether it was like the long blue challenge or the lineup challenge. And uh, what people were doing was just uh, going live on Facebook, which was quite popular. It was a few hundred people watching. They were going live on Facebook and they, was, they were doing the challenge and then they were saying, please donate afterwards. And they didn't care about the donation, obviously. They were just doing it to try and make a high score or whatnot. But I thought to myself, do you know what? I do kind of care about this because it's, it's, it's a serious topic. And I just thought to myself, I'm going to do the challenge. Um, and I just thought, shall I do a rap and make it funny and try and promote the charity that way? Or shall I actually be serious about it and show a side to me that people don't often see? Um, and I, I went for the serious option. So I did the, I did the, the challenge. And then afterwards, I just did a little speech about, particularly in snooker, about how mental health can be affected as a snooker player. I wasn't even on the tour back then, but I can understand it totally. You know, you're traveling to countries like China on your own. You play in a match under extreme pressure, you know, destabilizing pressure sometimes that you're feeling. And you've missed the final black at 5-5 five five to win the match. Not only is that the match, it's 6,000 pounds or nothing. That weren't luck. That was you. You missed that ball. You're responsible. You've only got yourself to blame. You bottled it. You twitched it. You have to live with that. It was your fault. 
that you can't even put the blame on anybody else. You have to live with that for a long time that I messed that up. It was all my fault and I hate myself for it. And you're angry with yourself and you're frustrated. And then you go back to the hotel room and you're alone and you sit there and you think constantly, that's the, what I missed. I missed that. And this and that, every mistake I made and it's all my fault. And then you go on the plane for 24 hours back to England on your own, hurrying up, hurry up the journey, hurry up. And you're still there just sitting on the plane thinking about the same shot again. Then you go home back to the practice room and you're banging your head against the wall in the empty practice room thinking, how do I improve? I've just thrown away that chance. I might fall off the tour. I might do this. I might do that. I mean, how bad does that sound? What I've just said there, you know, that's how mentally torture it, it can be. And not just, I mean, there's many situations, not just that, but a lot of, a lot of it as a snooker player, you're dealing with isolation. You're dealing with being lonely. You're dealing with extreme pressure and tension and stress and you're dealing with it mostly alone. And it's not just a sport where you can, you know, try your best and hope it's enough. It's a sport where if you don't do enough, you lose your job. It's incredible stress. And I didn't even, you know, I wasn't even on the tour when I said all this, but I, I, got, I understood it. I got it. And so I said all that. And I said, for that reason, as a snooker player, I want to highlight SOS as this charity because, you know, people need someone to talk to and, check on your friends, ask them if they're okay, especially in times like these. And, you know, ask second time. Ask, don't just ask once, ask again, because people will say they're fine when they're not. Mm. Ask again, make sure your friends know that you're there for them because everyone's struggling in times like these. I've got friends who, you know, are struggling that you wouldn't have thought they were because people don't want to tell everybody. But this charity, you know, is trying to encourage you that it is okay to talk. So I gave a speech of that nature on the camera live on Facebook after I finished the challenge and Yvette, um, who runs the charity, she was impressed with the speech. She liked the way I spoke and she asked me if I'd like to become an ambassador because I've sort of got a good platform and I, I speak well and I've got a passion for the charity. So I agreed, of course, and um, didn't know exactly what it would entail, but I know it's you know just generally raising awareness and trying to promote it. I taught I turned pro literally the week after, so she was a blessing. <laughs> and um and since then we've been talking about things we can do. And I've written a song about SOS. Not about SOS, but about suicide. And um it's a proper song, it's not a comedy one this time, of course. It's a serious song. It's a rap slash singing song. And I'm trying to find a, a vocalist for the singing bits and I'll be rapping it. And it's it's hard hitting, it's powerful, it's serious, it talks about dark subjects um with no filter you know it's 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 not one for you know soft listeners it's got it's powerful and i like it and i think it's 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 it really sends a good message across um a powerful message and you know i didn't hold back with it and i think it will be very popular and very good um in terms of raising awareness for mental health the only negatives, again, is because of lockdown and everything going with that, we can't really get it released until quite a while away. Uh, but when it does get released, I think, I think it will share a good message and really help the charity out and hopefully help some people out in the process. Excellent. So that's my next song project. Good for you. And before the good people from Zoom attempt to charge me, um, we're going to have to wrap up. What, finally then, just look into the future. Obviously, this is your first year on tour. You're guaranteed a second year. Um, hopefully things will get back to normal we're hoping in the, in the next year what are your sort of immediate ambitions everyone wants to be world champion we know that but in the next few years what is your sort of what are your main ambitions in the game 
well, hopefully I get three years if, it, if we get <laughs> cut off again. If we get cut off again for another pandemic or another lockdown, I want three years. Um, no, I'm, as everyone always says, boring as it sounds, the first task is to get into the top 64 mm. uh, because that's how you stay on. But even by doing that, that only keeps you on for one year. So ultimately, my goals are to have a lot of deep runs in tournaments. You know, I've, I've done that, managed, managed to do that in the European Masters. And it feels great, you know, being at the business end of a tournament. Uh, a lot of people win a lot of first round matches and they stay on the tour uh, or second round matches, which is great. And that's great money. But really, the, 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 the money is at the business end of tournaments. It's very, very top heavy. And I'd love to be in as many business ends of tournaments as I can be in the next two years. I want to be making the five figure money in the quarters and semifinals. And I managed to do it in the European Masters. So it's possible. And it's just a matter of doing it at the right times. And ultimately, you know, we want to win trophies. So trophies is the long-term goal. World champion is the long, long-term goal. But for now, for these two years while I'm on the tour, it's to stay in the 64 and have as many deep runs as I can, get that experience in front of the cameras, get in the later stages of tournaments, beat some big names and make a name for myself. You know, get, get my name out there so when the name comes up in the draw, they know who I am sort of thing. That's the hope. Excellent. Well, Peter, I get the feeling we could have talked a lot longer, but unfortunately I'm too tight to pay for an account, so we're going to have to stop. <laughs> but listen, I, I wish you all the best over the rest of the season. Obviously, the World Championship, I guess, is the big thing that's coming up quite soon now, a couple of months, the qualifiers. Uh, you'll, just finally, actually, I mean, are you able to practice properly at the moment? I am practicing as best as I can. I don't have any, I don't have any match standard tables. I've got, I'm on club tables with big pockets, with... Mm. You know, roll-offs and stuff like that but I'm treated like very nicely you know, I get the privileges of going to the club and the, ta- the table is nice it's not anywhere near like what the tv tables are like which is why I'm really valuing being able to practice the night before on the match tables because otherwise I'd be completely lost mm. but it's nice and warm it's cozy I've got the permission to go in there and for that I'm thankful that at least I've got something because without that I'd really struggle you know a lot of people have got academies and stuff like that, but I, London doesn't really have that. Mm. So I'm, I've got somewhere and I'm pleased about that. It's uh, the best of a bad situation. Excellent. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Peter. We'll follow your progress with great interest. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.